welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It is a joy to be with you. Um, a special welcome to our, our visitors this morning. Um, it is a joy to have you with us. Uh, we're preaching through Genesis, and so we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we see what God has written in His Word. So we are in Genesis chapter 25, so if you would, please turn to Genesis 25. Two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 24, where God went before His people, demonstrating His steadfast love and trustworthiness, as well as His providence, which I define as this constant acting in every situation to bring about his glory, his will, and his people's ultimate good. So that is where we were at two weeks ago. We also briefly touched on the biblical theme of seeking, finding, and sacrificing for lifelong love. It's the human pursuit of romance as a glimpse of God's love for his people. If you're like, how did I get to that point? Then please go back and listen to it. It's, uh, the recording is there. In that story of God providing a bride for Isaac, Isaac was mostly in the background. And we will find that that trend continues in Genesis. As Abraham steps off the stage of Genesis and Isaac now becomes the, the new patriarch of the chosen people of God, it's surprising that Isaac's, that Isaac's story will mostly be told through the turbulent story or life story of his son. So Isaac comes onto the scene. He is the patriarch of the family, but then it shifts gears to to Jacob for for several chapters. I believe for 11 or 10 chapters, he's the emphasis. So Genesis 25 serves as a bridge between Abraham and Isaac, but it will also introduce uh, introduce Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And in chapter 25, these two brothers, the the life story and the birth and the the beginnings of these two boys' lives, it will set the stage for answers about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So this story is setting a stage. And in Genesis, it would be really easy to skip over it. But then when we take the Old Testament with the New Testament, the New Testament sheds light, further revelation on what was happening all the way back in Genesis 25. So we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. What is our moral responsibility before a sovereign God? Verses 1 through 18 in Genesis 25 conclude Abraham's story. It is this handing off of the baton. And by it lists uh, Abraham's other wife, his other children, and his burial in the same cave where Sarah was buried. Then in verse 11, we're told that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, which is a clear indication that Isaac has now assumed the role of the patriarch of God's chosen people and that God has, has accepted him And that God would bless Isaac because of his promises, because of the covenant. With this background information, for the sake of time, we're going to begin reading now in verse 19 of Genesis 25. Verse 19 until 26. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. 
And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them until there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to to help us as we as a church family walk through the word together. And may God give us unity around his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you didn't just leave us here to kind of figure life out on our own. Instead, that you have written us this love letter, this love letter to your church so that we might know you. So that we might be confronted with who we are, how we are. We are in need, in great need. And thank you, Lord, that you have revealed your salvation. Jesus Christ, who has come and has met our need and has far surpassed that and has brought us into the heavenly places, you say. Lord, I pray that as we study Genesis 25 and the other passages that point to it, that you would warm our hearts to your word, to your truth, that the spirit of God inside us would would Show us through the word that this is the truth, that our hearts would, would, be, would be knit to the truth, that we would rejoice in it, and that your will would be accomplished in us, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next, that we would be conformed to the image of the risen Jesus Christ, that we would begin to walk in righteousness, which you say one day you will fully and completely finish when we are with you. Lord, please uh, bless me now as I attempt to explain your word. Would you forgive my errors and would you give grace to the hearers that we would all walk out of here today worshiping our great God for you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Twenty years have gone by since Isaac and Rebekah were married in the previous chapter. But once again, the chosen family is unable to have children. So we saw this also in the life of Abraham. For 20 years, Isaac and Rebekah have been waiting for children. And we see that Isaac is praying for his wife. But they don't attempt to bypass God's timing. Remember Abraham and Sarah, they were like, this is taking too long. Like I'm approaching 90. Like let's... Let's figure out another solution. Well, well, Isaac and Rebekah don't do that. Instead, they trust upon the Lord for 20 years. And the Lord hears Isaac's prayer and his timing, and he answers Isaac's prayer through opening Rebekah's womb. But after the initial joy of finding out that she was pregnant, Rebekah begins to experience unusual pain in her pregnancy. It's like there's a little war being fought in her womb. And when Rebekah asks God to intervene, the Lord speaks directly to Rebekah and reveals the future to Rebekah. 
He says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. In his words to Rebekah, God is revealing what is going to happen in the future. But he is not only revealing what he sees happening one day in the future. That's not all God is doing. No, God is revealing to Rebecca and to all God's people what God has determined will happen, what he has chosen to make happen. God is revealing that he is going to bless one of her sons, the younger, by making him stronger than the older, older son. God is declaring in this prophecy which son he has chosen And God is revealing which son he has not chosen. Now, why do I say that? Seeing that this, the passage itself could simply, it could simply be a revelation of what's going to happen in the future. Or or you could say what men themselves would do in the future. Couldn't this simply be a prophecy of future wars between Israel and the descendants of Esau, who would be called the Edomites? Isn't that simply what this is? Why am I saying it's more than this? The reason I emphasize that God is declaring which son he has chosen is because of Romans 9. The only place in the New Testament that looks back on the birth of Jacob and Esau. It looks back on Genesis 25 and sheds greater light, gives us further revelation. The Apostle Paul has been writing an incredible defense of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone through Romans. And in Romans 9, he is explaining why the Israelites, the family who received the covenant and the promises, this is the the family of Abraham, why this family has rejected, for the vast majority of Israelites, they had rejected their Messiah, and it seems Like God has also rejected them. Why is this happening? Have the promises to Abraham's bloodline failed? Did God's words fall to the ground as if he failed to keep his promises? Paul answers that question with an emphatic no. And then gives two examples of how and why God's words still stand. They have never fall into the ground and they will not they will accomplish what he has promised look with me at romans 9 we're going to begin in verse 6 romans 9 verse 6 but it is not as though the word of god has failed again he's talking about why has israel rejected their savior it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to Israel. He's talking about this physical descent. Just because you're physically descended from Abraham does not mean you are the Israel of God, God's people. Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He's saying the same thing again. He quotes then, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's pointing back to Genesis. Here Paul is comparing the birth of Isaac to the birth of Ishmael, what we've already studied through this year. Even though Ishmael was physically the firstborn of Abraham, God rejected him because Isaac was the son of promise, the son that God promised. Isaac was the child who would receive the covenant of God according to the choice of God. God 
had chosen Isaac. Verse 8, Paul continues. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Just because Ishmael was physically born of Abraham doesn't mean he was chosen by God. That's what Paul's getting at. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. He's dividing between Ishmael and Isaac. It's not Ishmael. Ishmael's through Hagar. He is the son of the flesh. He is the son that I have, I have rejected. Isaac is the son of promise. That was the first example of God's choosing in Paul's argument here in Romans 9. The one between Ishmael and Isaac. And Isaac was chosen before he was ever born. He was promised to be the, the child that God would accept before he was ever born. That's the first example. The next, and then Paul gives his second example, beginning in verse 10. And not only so, not only with Ishmael and Isaac, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they, Esau and Jacob, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And he's quoting there, from Malachi 1, verses 2 through 3. So why would the older serve the younger? Why would Esau serve Jacob? Why would Jacob rise above his older brother Esau and be blessed by God? Paul says it is not because of their works. It is not because of what they did. They weren't even born yet when God says this. But instead, Paul says... It is because of him who calls. He's talking about God who calls. It is the mercy and grace of God that chooses some to be eternally blessed by God. This is what he's arguing for here. The scriptures repeatedly portray all humanity as in rebellion to God, condemned already through, through um, Adam. We are content to cruise on the highway to hell without ever looking for an exit. That's the way the scriptures repeatedly portray humanity apart from God. Without the intervention of God, we are rebels to God. We hide from God. We are ashamed. We Think about Adam and Eve. We feel naked and exposed when the glory of God is. Even a glimpse of it comes near us. So we hide. We are rebels to God. We run from him on our own. But the good news is that God shows mercy, which is his restraining his own hand of judgment on sinners. So mercy is his withholding judgment, which all mankind deserve. And we, the good news is that God shows grace which is God giving his unmerited favor towards sinners. So it's this withholding of judgment and this giving of grace, this is of, of, of unmerited favor. This is the good news. In his mercy and grace, Paul is arguing, God chose to save some. 
as people for himself. We saw that in Romans 8. This is now maybe three or four weeks ago. We went, we went detailed through each verse of Romans 8, I believe 25 through 28. In his mercy and grace, God chose to save some people as a people for himself. While we were cruising toward hell, content to worship this world, to live for ourselves, to make gods of ourselves. While we were content to do that, God calls us. He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that can even love and desire him. That was a gift from him to some. Why does he do that? Paul says in, a verse, in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now you say the word election. Whew, just threw out a, a word there. What is election? It simply means God's choosing. That word is translated choose multiple other places in the scriptures. This word election is simply means God's choosing. We saw a few weeks ago in Romans 8, 29, that God foreknew or God chose to enter into a relationship with his people before the world was created. That's the definition of the word foreknew. He chose to enter into a relationship with the people before the world was created. And then he predestined those people or predetermined those people's end, that those people would be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So we studied that together. This is what Paul is referencing back to when he speaks of God's purpose of election. His purpose for choosing was so that he would have a people who were conformed into the image of his son, that he would be the first among many brothers. That is God's purpose of election or God's purpose in choosing. So here's the point. Before the world began, God chose a people for himself and he predetermined that these people would one day without fail be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. This is God's purpose of election and it cannot fail. Why can't it fail? Because God is the creator of the universe. He made and owns everything, and he has all authority over everything that he has made. In theology, this clear biblical teaching is labeled the sovereignty of God. He is the sovereign, which is a fancy English word that means ruler over all things. That's all it means. It's, he's a sovereign, a ruler over all things. We say God is sovereign because he alone in all the universe is ultimately free to do what according to his own will. That's what makes him the ultimate sovereign of the world. He alone is free to do his will. There is no king or ruler higher than him who can say, why have you done this? Or you will not do this or you will bow the knee to me. There is no one else higher than him who can make those claims on him. No one. But God makes all those claims on all of creation. So he is the sovereign of the universe. The word sovereign 
is sometimes translated the word Lord or Master. Many times when you see the word Lord in your, in your Bibles, it's not the word Yahweh, which is translated in all caps, typically Lord. Sometimes when you see it in lower caps, Lord, it's simply the word Master, Ruler, Sovereign. It's this idea of the King who rules. The thought of questioning God's right or his righteousness for doing what he has done is ludicrous to the Christian. The Christian, as you you read the word of God, you realize that it is foolish to charge God with wrong. God is the sovereign creator of the universe. He wields ultimate power and ultimate authority to do his will in the universe that he has made, and all his deeds are righteous all the time. That is the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again. And Paul is going to add these words in Romans 9 to confirm the righteousness of the sovereign of the universe in choosing some for eternal blessing while choosing to pass over others. God chooses to allow rebels to continue on their path of rebellion while choosing to snatch some from the flames. This is what Paul has been describing. And he says in Romans 9 verse 14 that God is good and right to do this. We read in verse 14, what shall we say then? What's the church supposed to say when we think about the sovereignty of God? Is there injustice on God's part for doing this? By no means, never is what he's saying, not a chance. Verse 15, for he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So here's the point. God is the only sovereign. He has complete authority, complete power, and every right to rule what he has made according to his will. That shouldn't be all that controversial for us because it's the clear testimony of Scripture. Second, God is righteous, always good and right. Therefore, The only sovereign is righteous and good when he chose to eternally bless some. He chose to eternally bless Jacob and he is righteous and good when he chooses to eternally pass over others. He did not accept Esau. And he did this. He made this decision. Paul clearly argues before they were ever born or ever did anything good or bad. So we should not point to the life of Jacob and Esau as the reason for why they were saved or chosen by God. That's the point Paul's making. Don't look at their life. If you do, you will wonder why either one of them were saved. If you look at your own life, you should be wondering, how am I saved? Why would God look on me with favor? It must be unmerited. That should be the testimony of every Christian is that I did not deserve it. There was nothing in me. It is the mercy and grace of God unmerited. Now, what happens to a Christian's heart as 
we or he or she leans into this biblical truth. I'm not saying that everyone sitting here today is fully convinced of this, even happy about this. This might be scary. But as we lean into this and we dig into what the word says about the sovereignty of God and who is saved and who is not, when we lean into this biblical truth, what happens? What happens when maybe one day you and I are fully convinced of God's authority, power, righteousness, and yet his mercy and grace towards rebels like us, despite who we were and despite how undeserving we, we, we would be? What happens when we lean into this truth? Well, the scriptures say that we will begin to properly worship our God. We will love him. We will desire more of him. To worship God is to declare through my thoughts, words, and deeds that God is more worthy than anything else that exists. That he is worthy of my devotion, my sacrifice, my time, my health, wealth, and worthy of my suffering. That's what the the apostles often said. I rejoice to suffer for the the sake of his name. He is worthy of it. I struggle to understand that. But as we are convinced of his worthiness, then our hearts will overflow with praise for the one who loved us and died for us while we were his enemies. That's what the scripture repeatedly points to as we lean into the truth that it is only the unmerited favor of God that has brought any to salvation. That is the foundation of everyone's salvation, the unmerited grace and favor of God. I realize some sitting here today are struggling with one or more points I've raised so far. That's okay. You may be concerned that if God is as sovereign as God says he is in Genesis 25. And as Paul is teaching in Romans 9, then do our decisions or actions really even matter? If he really is that sovereign, then do my choices even matter? Why don't just, you know, let live, love and let live. You know, tomorrow we die. Why not? If God has already chosen who will be saved, despite who they were or how undeserving they would one day be, then does it even matter what we do? It's a valid question. The second scene in Genesis 25, thankfully, answers that question clearly, warning every person that they will stand condemned before God if they despise the grace of God. Let's start reading again in Genesis 25, verses 27 through 34. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. In this passage, we could spend a lot of time talking about true, what true masculinity looks like. I mean, I even thought about like having a, you know, one of those beige Toyota buckies with, you know, the rifle on the redheaded the farmer's, you know, you know, shoulder as he's getting ready to go hunt kudu or something. I mean, that's that's Esau right there. It really is like he's a man's man. I thought about talking about Jacob, you know, his husk. Like he's the guy wearing the nice suit and the tie, the businessman. He's making lots of money, you know. Like, like you know, we can we can we could spend a lot of time on that. It would have been fun, but uh, we could have also talked about Jacob's deception. He's a liar, a trickster, a heel snatcher. I could have spent a lot of time about parental favoritism, about whether or not we should have favorites in our family. That would also be a valid topic. But I believe the primary point of the scene, which immediately follows God's election of Jacob prior to his birth, is the point that Esau despised his birthright. We get a very good hint that this is the primary point of the entire scene because that's how the author of the book of Genesis closes this scene. He closes it with this statement. Verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. These are really helpful hints in scripture that like this was the reason that this was written in this tiny little story or scene was put in scripture. Thus Esau despised his birthright. When we hear the word birthright, we should be thinking inheritance, but it's not an ordinary inheritance. The eldest son's inheritance or birthright was supposed to be at least twice that of any other child. That was, that was normal and accepted in polite uh, society back then. Thus the word birthright means that because he was the firstborn son, he has the right to a double inheritance. In addition to more land and possessions, there is a real sense in which the name and lineage of the father continues on through the eldest son, through this birthright. So the birthright represents land, possessions, and continuing the family line as the head of household. Now, with that background, cultural information, think with me about God's covenant with Abraham and with Isaac later. God promised to bless Abraham with land and possessions, to make Abraham's name great, and that his offspring would be a blessing to all the earth. When we compare that with what, with what the eldest son received through the birthright, land, possessions, a name, and a family line, then we begin to realize what exactly Esau despised. Esau despised the promises of God. Esau despised the blessing of God. He despised God's unmerited grace and favor toward his family. That's what he despised. And Genesis 25 places the blame squarely on Esau's shoulder. Esau took a holy thing, the birthright from God, the birthright, the blessing of God, and he treated it as common. He treated it as of less value than a full stomach. To hear, see, and know the blessing that God provides and then to treat it as a common thing is to despise the grace of God. 
This is the exact same warning and application that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament (coughs) makes in reference to this birthright scene in Genesis 25. So Hebrews writes, looking all the way back to Genesis 25 and speaks of this scene, this birthright scene. In Hebrews 12, the church is being instructed in why they are suffering and experiencing trials in life. He's, He's teaching them about the struggle of the Christian life sometimes. Hebrews 12 is teaching that God is disciplining His children, or you could say God is training His children in righteousness so that we will share in His holiness. It doesn't feel nice right now to go through trials. He talks about no child is thankful, like, you know, really likes being spanked. You know, he talks about that. He's like, it's not pleasant right now. He says, but take heart because through these trials you will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We've, I think we looked back at that two weeks ago as well. There were some in the church who were weighing the cost of following Jesus in a world that hated Christians. So follow Jesus, be persecuted, or go back to the world and have a nice, comfortable life. Some were weighing that. These people were looking over the fence at the world outside the church and and they were seeing that everything over there, it looks so green and fresh and happy and all so satisfying. And if I just went back over the fence to the world, then I would have my every desire. But Hebrews is pleading with these people on the fence to endure. He's pleading with them to endure, to not believe the lie, to continue in the faith. So let's pick up reading in Hebrews 12. If you'll look with me, Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. Hebrews 12, verse 12. I'll begin there. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He's making a a spiritual comparison to like a physical problem. He's saying spiritually, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your heart, make straight paths for your feet, follow God, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So he's saying when God trains you through trials, when you run into persecution even, then run to God and find healing and strength, the strength you need to endure. That's what he's saying. He's he's saying don't run back to the world when you face trials. If you do that, then what is, what's broken in you will just be completely, will even be more broken. He's saying we'll be put out of joint. It's like a dislocated arm. My arm is sore. But if I run back to the world, your arm won't just be sore. It's not going to become dislocated. That's kind of the picture he's painting here. Don't go back to the world. Don't run back to the world. And then you will suffer because you will suffer even greater spiritual brokenness. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, to the best of your ability, be at peace with your neighbors, even if they're un- unbelievers, to the best of your ability. But if it's not in your power, then endure. Again in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's saying, strive for holiness in every circumstance. Endure for the sake of being conformed to Christ. Because those who stay, those who endure during trials, 
That is a sign of their adoption into the family of God. That's a sign that the Spirit of God is within you and that you are true child of God. He's saying endure. Allow trials to accomplish this holiness within you because if you don't, if you run from this, you will not see the Lord. He's talking about entering into the joy of God's presence. You will not. That's what he's saying. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Here Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy 29 which warns Israel about any among them who hears, sees, and knows the grace of God towards Israel, but determines secretly in his heart to worship other gods. That's what Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 through 21 says, and I will read it to you here for context. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, now now think about this in connection to Hebrews. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. It's that bitter, bitter root. Verse 19, one who, when he hears the words of God, of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart. He's, He's encouraging himself saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. God says this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. That's Deuteronomy. So this root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble that Hebrews is is referencing here, it's actually a person. He's not talking about an emotion. He's talking about a person. He's referencing back to Deuteronomy saying, he's saying it is a person who lives and worships among the people of God, but secretly has despised the grace of God and is living in rebellion. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. This person hears, sees, and knows all about the grace of God, but he has failed to obtain it Because he has despised God's grace by the way he worships other things. That's why he's saying he lists sexual immorality. He has despised God's grace. And in his heart and in his deeds, he proclaims that this world and the pleasures of this world are more worthy of my devotion and my praise than God is. That's what it means to despise the grace of God. Hebrews 12 now continues by drawing on Esau as an example of this type of person. This is why I've brought you to Hebrews 12, because now he's going to point directly into our story. Verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Verse 16 points out that Esau was unholy. Because he looked at his birthright, which represented the grace of God towards him as part of the covenant family. He looked at that inheritance, that grace, and he valued it less than a bowl of stew. 
Esau was unholy, which is a title given to him because he profaned something that was sacred. He treated the grace of God, his birthright, as something common and unworthy of his sacrifice now. It wasn't worthy of sacrificing for a little bit so he would go hungry. It wasn't worth it. Hebrews 12, verse 17 now will now end with a severe warning about anyone in the church who makes a practice of sinning. That's their way of life. They're in the world secretly and they are committing secret sins while hanging out with the church. He says, it's a warning to the church, to anyone in a church who would live that way and thereby despise the grace of God like Esau. This is a warning to them. I'll begin again from verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Hebrews has now moved forward in the Genesis story to chapter 27, which is a tragic scene where the day of Esau's inheritance had finally come. Isaac was very old and blind, and he anticipated his death. And so he calls Esau so that he could bless him, so that he could bless Esau before he dies. Esau is excited that the day had finally come. He's like, yes, I get to receive finally the the inheritance. But before he arrives at his father's tent in order to take on this mantle of the patriarch of the family who God would bless above his brothers, before he gets there, Jacob sneaks in and steals the blessing without Isaac or Esau realizing it. When Esau finally arrives at Isaac's tent and he's thinking, now I'm going to receive the blessing. I'm going to receive my inheritance. When When he finally gets back, He and Isaac both realized that they've been tricked. The blessing had been given to Jacob and it could not be changed. And we read of Esau's sorrow in Genesis 27 verse 34. And this is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. Esau's sorrow. Verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But Isaac said to him, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. It would be easy to simply blame Jacob for this incident and then move on and just, you know, make a mental note to watch out for other people because they're going to try and take nice things from you. I mean, it'd be really easy to just to move on with that thought. But Hebrews makes a completely different application. Hebrews 12 verse 17 states that because Esau despised the grace of God by despising his birthright those years before, Because of that, when the day of inheritance finally came, it was God who rejected Esau. That's what Hebrews is arguing. Esau was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. When it says he found no chance to repent, this is the idea there was no room. There was no place for repentance. 
the time had passed. That's what it's talking about. Even though he sought it with tears and there was great weeping and sorrow, the moment of repentance had passed. It was gone. His inheritance had been given to another. Hebrews applies this to the visible church, the people who claimed the name of Christian. Hebrews applies this to us. And Hebrews is warning that if, that if we despise the grace of God in this life, living a secret life of sin, unrepentant, worshiping our lusts, then when the day comes for us to inherit eternal life, God will reject us. That is the application Hebrews is making. When we stand before the throne of the Son, if we have despised the grace of God by living in secret, unrepentant sin, then we will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And just like Esau, there will be no chance to repent then. The moment of repentance will be gone. Though we seek it with many tears, though there is great sorrow, the moment will be gone when we stand before the Lord if we have lived a life of luxury, secret sin, rebellion, worshiping the gods of this world rather than giving to God the worship that is due Him. The scene in Genesis 25 and the application of Hebrews 12 are a clear indication that our actions And decisions in this life do matter. And they have real and eternal consequences. Just like the actions and decisions of Esau. That's the point of this story. Is that our actions do have real consequences. So in Genesis 25. I've attempted through these two historical scenes. To show these two biblical truths. Because I believe that's what the stories themselves are doing. Two biblical truths are being revealed through these two historical scenes. We have seen undeniable scriptural proof that God is sovereign and has elected or chosen a people for himself. These people will respond to God's call and they will be conformed into the image of Christ. Because this has been God's will from eternity past. I spent a lot of time laboring through Romans 8 to to show that this is where Paul is going in his argument. And that was in past weeks. And today we've looked briefly at Romans 9, which continues the same argument. But also here in Genesis 25, we have undeniable scriptural proof that our decisions in life matter and have real and eternal consequences. How can we reconcile these two biblical truths? And it's everywhere in Scripture. Wherever you look, it's typically talking about one or the other. The sovereignty of God or man's moral responsibility to this sovereign God. First, we should recognize that Scripture does not attempt to fully, I use the word fully, reconcile these two facts. Scripture does not attempt to fully reconcile reconcile these two facts the scriptures for the most part say it is so and every christian must come to the point where they are willing to receive the truth of god 
because God says it is so. That's where we all should be. If if the scripture says it, then it is true and we should believe it. But I'd also like to suggest to you Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29, as one of many passages of scripture that give us an idea of what living the Christian life under the rule of our sovereign God should look like. So Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29, is one passage where we can kind of hold on to this passage and say, this is what living the Christian life under the rule of a sovereign God should look like. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, this is after Hebrews has made this long argument. Therefore, let us be, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I hope that passage brings you as a Christian great joy and comfort and peace. Let us be grateful. As we think about these things, the unshakable nature of God's kingdom and those whom he has chosen who will one day enter into that kingdom. Let us be grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's pointing to the sovereignty of God that this eternal heavenly kingdom will not be shaken. Let us be grateful. There is a gratefulness and love that will fill a Christian as we dwell upon the mercy and grace of God who chose us as his people before the world began. The God who made us citizens of his unshakable kingdom by his grace, by his sovereign grace. So we should be grateful for our undeserved election. Undeserved election. And when that gratefulness and love takes root in our hearts, we will begin to praise the one we love. This is just reality. If you love your wife, then you typically will find ways to praise her. It's just a reality. It's what we do. When the Springboks win the Rugby World Cup, we tend to talk about how great that pass was. Or can you believe he made that kick with two minutes to go? We praise the things we admire. If we think something is beautiful and worthy, we praise those things. Those are some silly examples. But ultimately, if you love God, if God is beautiful to you, if what he has done from eternity past is marvelous in our eyes, we will worship. We will praise. We will say with our mouth and think with our thoughts and act according to the thing we think is beautiful and worthy. And we will offer to God, as Hebrews says, acceptable worship through our lives. And we will do it with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So Hebrews 12 recommends gratefulness and worship. Gratefulness for what God has done, which I had nothing to do with, and acceptable worship. This is where I continue on in the faith. That's what Hebrews 12 recommends. And as a second example or suggestion to you, Jesus puts it this way. 
when speaking to his disciples in the crowds. He said in Luke 10, verse 20, while speaking to his disciples, those who, had, who were following him and serving alongside him, he said, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They were getting excited about some other stuff, that they were doing signs and miracles. But Jesus says, don't primarily rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then only a couple verses later, in verse 27, he has that conversation with a, with a young man. And he tell, talks about the, the good Samaritan. He tells that parable. And we read what our responsibility should be. Man's responsibility. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What are we supposed to continue into when our names are written in the book of life in heaven? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of Christ, which we see later in the the New Testament explained as well. So Jesus recommends Rejoicing in what God has done and living a devoted life of love to this God. So how can we reconcile God's sovereignty, what he does because he is God, and man's responsibility? How can we do that? I would suggest to you that we should rejoice always in our completely undeserved election and then worship God in every aspect of our life. And God says that is the point for all eternity, is to worship Him as trophies of His grace. That's what we will do for all eternity. So rejoice always in your completely undeserved election, and then worship God in every aspect of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You again for Your Word. I thank you for the Spirit of God who you have given each believer so that we can test the truth. So we can test to make sure that the the words we're hearing are the truth. Lord, I realize that this is something that is often argumented about or debated. Lord, I pray that we as a church would rejoice in what we clearly see revealed in your word that we would be patient with one another, that we would speak with humility, that we would wait upon the Lord to help us as if something seems scary in the word or not true or, or just, just is that even right? Is God truly that sovereign? Am I really responsible? As we think about these things, would you give us wisdom? Would the Spirit guide us? Would your words jump off the page and into our hearts so that this will bring joy, not just not conflict, not arguments, but instead that you would you would take us forward as a church in unity and in joy in what the scriptures, what what your words to us are and the truth. That we would rejoice in the truth, that we would rejoice in what you have done for us and that we would worship you with acceptable worship. We love you in Jesus' name.